0: The Pat Kenny Show
1: with Aviva Insurance on News
0: Talk. This morning, Israel is presenting its response to South Africa's genocide case against it at the International Court of Justice. Now, uh, joining me to discuss why this case was taken and its significance with uh, South Africa's apartheid past is campaigner, author, filmmaker, and former MP under Nelson Mandela, Andrew Feinstein. Andrew, good morning.
1: Good morning. Good to be with you.
0: Now, you you yourself are Jewish by background, and in fact, the Holocaust forms part of that background.
1: Absolutely. Um, My mother was Austrian. She was one of very few Jews to survive the Second World War under Nazi occupation in Vienna itself. She did that by being hidden in a coal cellar for three and a half years. So the Holocaust has always loomed large um, in my life and, I suppose, in my political thinking. And, I, and crucial to that is that my mother, who, having met my father and moved to South Africa, would teach my siblings and myself that Never Again, which was invoked after the Second World War, in which she lost dozens of members of her family, mainly at Auschwitz, that Never Again was not Never Again just for Jews, but Never Again for all people.
0: Now, your uh, political career, uh, you became a, an MP uh, at uh, a time when Nelson Mandela, the leader of the ANC, was freed and became uh, the leader of your country. Uh, tell me about that political process and why you got involved.
1: Well, I'd actually been involved with the ANC and the liberation struggle against apartheid from my late teens. i had got involved in um, squatter communities and black townships just outside Cape Town where I lived. Um, from a fairly young age, and it was there that, that I got involved with the ANC when it was still a banned and illegal movement. I had to leave the country in the mid-1980s to avoid serving in the apartheid military, returned as soon as the ANC was unbanned, and worked as a facilitator in the constitutional negotiations and other processes that led to our 1994 elections, where I was a candidate for the ANC and had the enormous privilege, especially as a white South African, to to serve under President Mandela.
0: Now, many members of your extended family uh, would have gravitated to Palestine and to be part of the new Israeli state.
1: Absolutely. Um, You know, one, one can certainly understand the desire for an Israeli state in the wake of of the awfulness of the Holocaust, and a number of members of, of my mother's extended family who managed to survive the camps, many assuming that they had lost all family, made their way to what was still then Palestine before Israel had become a nation state, and in one or two instances actually discovered that they still had Um, a member or members of their family who had survived and had also made their way to Palestine. So I completely understand why um, Jews, particularly in Western Europe, saw the creation of the State of Israel as some sort of a haven in the wake of, of the extraordinary tragedy of the Holocaust.
0: Did uh, your mother particularly remain a steadfast supporter of Israel?
1: Well, she was in general terms a supporter of Israel, but and you know my parents would take us as as children to Israel and we visited Yad Vashem, the the memorial to the Holocaust mm-hmm. on a number of occasions. But both family members who lived in Israel and my mother, not my father interestingly, but my mother became fairly critical of Israel. Um, as its occupation of the Palestinian territories became more brutal. And she became quite concerned that Israel was in fact oppressing another people in order to, in their eyes, safeguard the state of Israel. And this became concern of her. A couple of members of the family who, who had made their way to Palestine actually left Israel um, in the fairly early years after its formation. And I also think that, you know, my mother who got involved in the struggle against apartheid in South Africa on the basis of never again applying to all human beings became quite concerned that what we later came to know as the Nakba, what, what the Palestinians called the tragedy of 1948, when millions were forcibly removed from their land Um, and where many thousands were killed, my mother became quite concerned about the costs of the establishment of of the state of Israel.
0: Now, the uh, difference between South Africa and Israel, uh, I was watching a piece, uh, I found it on TikTok, of you talking uh, at a protest, and you were outlining the differences between Israel and the Palestinians and the white South African government, of P.W. Bosa, and the African population, which was the dominant cohort of the population, the white South Africans needed the black South Africans to make the economy function. The Israelis do not need the Palestinians.
1: That's exactly the case. So the South African economy, based very heavily on the exploitation of natural resources, particularly gold, um, relied on a very cheap and and quiescent, if you will, black African workforce who would do the works of extracting these natural resources, incredibly dangerous work, incredibly arduous work. And the South African economy was incredibly dependent on this workforce. So it would not have been in apartheid South Africa's interests to decimate the black African population. And it's for that reason that not just myself, but people of of far greater moral gravity than myself, like my former boss, Nelson Mandela, and a former friend and political mentor, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, would argue, and continue to argue throughout their lives, that in fact, the apartheid imposed in Israel and by Israel was in many instances far more brutal and far more murderous than that imposed on South Africa for that very economic reason.
0: Now, in South Africa, there there was an attempt to, if you like, segregate the population into, uh, like, mini homelands um, so that there could be, you know, white areas and then there could be black areas where, uh, if you like, the effects of of apartheid might not have been so evident.
1: Absolutely. These were called Bantustans. There were 13 of these little territories dotted around South Africa comprising less than 10% of the land for over 80% of the people. But the difficulty that faced the South African state was they needed labor to be mobile. So one never saw movement into and out of of these Bantustans controlled in the way that the occupied Palestinian territories are, where Palestinians can queue for many, many hours, sometimes not being allowed through checkpoints from one part of the Palestinian territories to another, let alone into or out of Israel. And in addition to which, these Bantu stands were not policed and effectively occupied by the apartheid state. Instead, they were run very badly and inefficiently, but what, by what were described as, as puppet rulers who had no legitimacy amongst the people they supposedly were there to to serve. And, of course, many blacks, particularly urban blacks, felt absolutely no relationship to these bantustans. The
0: Israelis, though, are fearful. I mean, you went uh, for one man, one vote, and you ended up with an ANC government, which is almost the permanent government for the moment. The Israelis are saying, we would be overwhelmed. We cannot embrace the model. Uh, They haven't articulated this, but this would be their belief. We cannot ever embrace the model embraced by South Africa.
1: Absolutely. Pat, first of all, can you hear me okay now?
0: Yes, hear you fine.
1: Great. Um, I I think the crucial point is white South Africa said exactly the same. There was enormous fear and apprehension as we led towards a democracy. Um, Resistance within the country and extraordinary global support through the BDS movement led to the end of apartheid in South Africa. It was not a willful choice of the white minority, they were forced into that situation because the economy had started to falter quite severely. And the quality of the lives of the very privileged white South Africans started to deteriorate markedly. And when it became clear that there was going to be this transition to a democratic state, there were enormous fears from white South Africans to the extent of stockpiling, emigration, claims that their houses, their swimming pools, their cars were going to be taken away. Um, And of course, while South Africa, as a democracy, far, far better than anything that preceded 1994, obviously, because it was not a racist oligarchy, but while it has challenges as a democracy, the interaction and the coexistence of the white minority and the black majority Has been absolutely remarkable. So I do think in these sorts of situations, of course, those who will in a different situation be in a minority will feel enormous apprehension and fear. And, you know, it's worth remembering that various um, elements of the liberation movement against apartheid South Africa spoke effectively about the obliteration of white South Africa, of the colonial settler state, as they sometimes called it. But of course, when the transition came to happen and when leaders of the caliber of Nelson Mandela emerged, instead, what we have created in South Africa is a quite remarkable non-racial democracy, not without its challenges, but those challenges are not around the coexistence of black and white South Africans.
0: Uh, Andrew, uh, cometh the hour, cometh the man. And there was a man in waiting in prison on Robben Island uh, who was ready to take the reins and everyone was surprised, I suppose, by uh, the generosity of his attitude towards the people who had oppressed him. And that maybe is what made it work. Looking at Hamas leadership who want to destroy the state of Israel and all the Israelis therein, and Netanyahu who is determined to expand settlers in the West Bank and, as you say, operates this regime which you'd characterize as apartheid, where is the man or woman who'll work the magic in Israel?
1: Well, there are a number of potential men or women, but there is one person who many Palestinians regard as their rightful leader. And this is across the West Bank, which is run by the Palestinian Authority, and Gaza, which is run by Hamas. And that is a man by the name of Marwan Bagouti, who is often described as Palestine's Nelson Mandela, and coincidentally has been in jail, in Israeli jail, for 27 years, the same period of time that Nelson Mandela served on Robben Island and in apartheid jails, and it was only when extensive pressure was exerted on the apartheid state that they were even minded to begin to engage in negotiations and discussions with somebody who they believed, through the negotiations, was a communist ogre, which, you know, when Nelson Mandela then emerges from prison, and we see this kindly grandfatherly figure, everybody was very pleasantly surprised, and many people were somewhat shocked that this was the huge ogre who was going to take away everything they had and endanger their lives. And when you have a state like Palestine that is either killing or imprisoning legitimate leaders of the Palestinian people, of course people on the outside are going to say, where is the Nelson Mandela? But I'm giving you just one name, a name that has been mentioned to me constantly across the occupied territories. Of course, there will be others, just like there were in South Africa. So we're at a particular moment in the story of Israel and Palestine. We had that moment, too, in South Africa.
0: Mm. Uh, finally, Andrew, I should ask you about the case that is ongoing today. Israel is defending itself against the charge of genocide brought by as uh, South Africa, Is this a case that um, you think you can win or is it largely symbolic in perhaps embarrassing and humiliating Israel in the wider world?
1: No, I I, I don't think the latter is the intention at all. I don't think South Africa would have gone to these lengths, which is obviously costly um, for a country that has huge socioeconomic needs, that obviously has certain diplomatic risks and economic risks attached to it threats of disinvestment from South Africa by um, countries that are very supportive of Israel, which include, obviously, the United States, the UK, and many countries of Western Europe. So I, I don't think this is being done as some sort of a symbolic gesture. I think it's being done extremely seriously because South Africa is a country that has emerged very successfully from racist oppression. It is a country that has had a struggle for that liberation that has always been in tandem with the struggle of the Palestinian people. The the Palestine Liberation Organization under Yasser Arafat and the ANC had huge amounts of contact, communication and supported each other. So there, there is that history, in addition to which it's important not to forget that the Israeli state was probably apartheid South Africa's staunchest ally, going to the point not just of arming that regime, but helping that regime become a nuclear power. So the history runs very deep. And I think one has to understand that history in the common moment. South Africa does not want to see on an even greater scale, the suffering and trauma that we experienced happen to the Palestinian people, in addition to which we believe that Israelis and Palestinians can coexist and live together peacefully. And that's really why we are pushing this. And I think that anybody who listened to or has read South Africa's 84-page filing would probably feel, as I do, that it is an extraordinarily terrifying and impressive document. that documents, for instance, the slaughter of 247 Palestinians every day since the 7th of October. 48 of whom are mothers, 117 of whom are children. And I think it's incredibly difficult, and I've been watching the Israeli response today, to try and defend the situation and say you're operating in self-defense when you're bombing hospitals where babies and incubators and those who have just been born who don't need incubators are being killed, when we are seeing the pictures of tiny children who have either been shot or bombed, having to have limbs amputated without anesthetic because the health infrastructure has been destroyed. So I think South Africa felt an overwhelming moral imperative in bringing this case. But I think something even more important than stopping the awful carnage we've seen for the last two months, is that this case is an attempt to protect the international rule of law which was so important in bringing about an, an end to apartheid in South Africa. Mm. And why I say that is because Israel and those countries, main, mainly in, in the West, that are providing it with weapons on a daily basis to continue this onslaught against the Palestinians, are in violation both of our domestic laws, but also of a variety of international laws about international humanitarian law, human rights law, and of course, the Genocide Convention, which is what this particular case at the ICJ is about.
0: Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. Andrew Feinstein, campaigner, author, filmmaker, and former MP on The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9 a.m. on News